Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also have to let you know that our latest volume of Elrond Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 39, is now available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. It contains the 12 winning authors and 12 winning illustrators selected by some of your favorite names in science fiction and fantasy, including today's guest. You've heard me talking about it for almost four years on this podcast, and so you should know by now what I'm talking about. Today's guest is Robert J. Sawyer. He was last on about three years ago, and I'm going to give some stats and stuff like that, which no doubt is way out of date. But anyway, I know and love him as the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction, which the Ottawa Citizen dubbed him. He's won all three of the science fiction field's top honors for his best novel of the year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, as well as 11 Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Awards, the Auroras. If any of you remember seeing the ABC series Flash Forward, it was based on his novel of the same name. When I first met him at Worldcon, Torcon 2, back 15, 20 years ago. It was actually, that was Torcon 3. Torcon 3. And it was, uh, it was 20 years ago this year, 2003. Torcon 3 in Toronto, the World Science Fiction Convention. That's when you won your first or your Hugo. My only Hugo, but it was the big one. As George R. R. Martin, who was the master of ceremonies that evening, said, George uh, has won in the three short fiction categories, short story, novelette, and novella. So he said he had three little ones, but we were about to announce the big one. And I was lucky enough that night to uh, take home the big one to my great, great surprise and delight. Absolutely. So since we're already into it, welcome Robert J. Sawyer. Thank you, John. And to continue, um, it was at that point that I met you. Yes. Along with, uh, I think it was uh, Hugh Wilhair at that time at that convention. We came Hugh up was there. there, absolutely, yes. Because we brought, I remember at the opening ceremony, we brought this, we blew up this photo that we had found or someone sent to us of Elwin Hubbard at Torcon 1. When, that's right, in 1948, that's right. Right, when he was one of the uh, the guest speakers yes. there. And so I presented, it was it was in whatever the reception area was. It had all the people in the, remember, in the balcony and whatnot. And, and the original con chair was there as well. Yes. We presented it to him. So that, that was a fun, but that was when we actually met you. We had a choice. Are we going to meet Robert J. Sawyer? Or are we going to meet uh, George R. R. Martin? And we opted to meet you. Well, I'm very pleased. <laughs> I'm totally happy with, with that decision. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually finished the judging each year. And George, of course, has a reputation right now for being quite behind schedule on things that he is committed to do. So uh, he might have brought a little more cachet, but I certainly get the job done on time for you. Well, we much prefer what you bring. Not that he wouldn't bring, obviously, of course not. George is terrific. But um, 
I'm so happy that uh, we brought you on board. Then we flew you out to Los Angeles. That's right. So the following year ceremony, because by that point in the year, the 2003 ceremony had already happened. Right. So I came out for the, I guess it would be spring of 2004, just as an observer. You invited me very, very generously. So come down and see what we're all about. Check us out. Uh, You know, don't don't, uh, guess what it's like. Know what it's like. So I came down. And of course, I was blown away, instantly blown away. Uh, The quality of um, the writer's workshop was uh, partially, two things blew me away. First, the quality of the writer's workshop. Uh, Just, you know, these winners, uh, the one, two, three, first, second, third place winners uh, for our quarterly contest get flown in, as you know, well, to our our workshop. And it was just so high level, so well taught, so uh, insightful that that blew me away. And then, you know, the list of people, and of course they were there, many of them. I mean, some, right. even by that point, this is 20 years ago, we'd already lost some judges. Some of our judges had already right. passed away. And in the interim, very sadly, some of the ones who were there 20 years ago, you know, Jerry Pornell has left us, uh, Yoji Kondo has left us, and so on. Uh, K.D. Wentworth and Dave Farland, who we all loved, who was our Eric coordinating Flint. judge yeah. for a long time, Eric Flint, et cetera. But at the time, uh, at Mike Resnick, my great mentor when I was starting out, at the time, still, they, they, all these wonderful judges, Larry Niven, who's still, of course, with us, and McCaffrey had passed away and since, uh, Orson Scott Card, you know, uh, just to see the caliber of people uh, who had um, decided that uh, the vision that obviously Mr. Hubbard had and that was brought to fruition by the first coordinating judge, uh, Algis Budras, mm-hmm. A.J. Budras, had uh, really, you know, it's all great well, I, and good to have an idea. You have to get people to rally behind your idea to make right. it a reality. And uh, Budras had gone out to recruit the creme de la creme of science fiction writers. And another one had passed away, Chris the Great, C.L. Moore, who was one of the original judges. Uh, and I thought, my goodness gracious, what... Uh, You know, if any science fiction convention could have a group of panelists that was, uh, even a world science fiction convention that was as esteemed as the panel of judges Mm -hmm. that uh, A.J. Budras had put together for this contest, I I couldn't imagine uh, such a a first-rate group. And then when you flattered me enormously by saying, and would you like to be one of these judges? Uh, I mean, I I just was uh, A, flattered, and B, because I had seen at that point, I had seen uh, the workshop, I had seen the gala awards ceremony, and I'd already, as, as you mentioned, I won a Hugo, I'd already won the Best Novel Nebula Award. And, you know, those ceremonies are fine, but they're nothing of the scale of um, excitement and uh, the um, just beautiful uh, stage show that is put on by Author Services. Uh, you know, people go to the Hugos or the Nebulas uh, very often in jeans and a t-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the uh, winners and the judges, the male judges in tuxedos and the female judges in evening gowns or dresses. I, I, it was just such a wonderful experience. And of course, so when you asked me if I would be a judge, so that was 2004, which means 2005. So as we speak today, 18 Years. Well, I guess it's the 19th year that I've been a judge because uh, 18, right. 18 years ago. Uh, and I just, it's a highlight of my year in two ways, in two ways. 
um, first just coming to the contest, coming to the event, coming to the event, meeting with the, the young writers, well, uh, the, the new writers, some of them aren't that young, um, uh, which is fine, which is fine. You know, you can, uh, enter this career at any stage of life. Uh, and we've had very young winners and we've had, you know, people who are senior citizens. Who second career winners. Second, that's an excellent phrase for it, second careers. So, uh, I'm always delighted by that, but also I've got to say, you know, I, I, I read a lot as I think most good writers do, but what keeps my finger on the pulse of what's new and exciting is getting to read uh, the finalists in this contest every year and just see how inventive, how clever uh, the writers are. Um, and to see, I, I'm always, you know, each judge has his or her or their prejudices about what they like and don't like. But for me, originality, something, you know, I've been reading science fiction. I'm, I'm in my 60s. I've been reading it for over half a century. Um, something that I've never seen before. And what astonishes me is how often the new writers in this contest knock my socks off with a completely original vision, something that, you know, it's not a pale limitation Asimov or Heinlein or, or Star Wars or Star Trek or anything else that's shop-worn at this point. It's new and fresh, and that is invigorating uh, to read every year. It's, it's not in any way, shape, or form uh, a burden it may be a burden for our poor slush pile reader, Carrie English, who has to go through lots and lots and lots of stuff. But by the time she separated the wheat from the chaff for the uh, final judging, uh, everything that we read, everything we read, it's a delight. Absolutely. It's, I've had some judges talk about how hard it is now to judge, to make a decision. We of, have to make a decision to rank them. Right. And, uh, and I want to say for everybody who's listening out there, all we know is the text and the title. We do not know the author's name. We do not know the author's gender. We do not know the author's nationality. We know the title of the story and the text. This is completely, in that sense, blind judging, and it's completely a meritocracy. And what delights us every year it, when Joni actually unveils it, because she, we find out at the same time that Joni sends out the press release uh, each quarter. These are the winners, da, 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 and where they're from. Da, da, da. And when we see uh, people from, uh, you know, Africa, when we see people from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, of course, I'm as a Toronto-based uh, writer. I'm always thrilled to see a Canadian. We have three Canadians in the room uh, this year, the Writers Workshop this year. Uh, and um, that delights me, but mm -hmm. but they have no inside track with me because I don't know right. until it's announced that they happen to be Canadian. And nor do any of the other writers who might, you know, have a home turf uh, bias have any way of knowing. It's what's wonderful about this is that it is just a complete and absolute meritocracy. And it, it's amazing how well it's worked out, you know, easily... 97, 98% of the winners are just darlings. You know, they're amazing because all their, all their the people, the, the, people, the, the people themselves. The human beings, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, because we have no inkling of what the people, That's right. you know, the personality. That's we right. just know they're a good storyteller. In all the years that I've been doing it now, I've never seen a um, uh, prima donna. I've never seen, amongst the winners, I've never seen anybody who uh, could not take 
the criticism that they because we do a writer's workshop round table. Right. People critique each other's manuscripts. I've never seen anybody who has been, you know, a bad sport or or maybe you don't get to the point of being a winner without already having learned to take criticism. I've never seen anybody be rude or unpleasant to another winner, to a judge, to one of the uh, people from author services. Uh, you're absolutely right. If there were 3% of people who weren't darlings, I've been lucky enough to avoid those 3%. Yeah. Uh, and, and as I always say, and I was talking to Martin Shoemaker, who is, of course, a past winner and does the official blog. blog right. And he was saying, to, we had lunch, um, I guess, the, the first day I was here, and he, uh, two days ago, and he said, you know, I didn't believe the judges when I won, when they all said, they're going to be there for you for life. They're going to be your rooting section and your cheerleaders and also your brain trust for the rest of your career. And he said, I was wrong. They have been. Every time I've had a question or I've needed maybe a cover blurb or somebody's sent me a contract for something and I'm a little bit dubious about it and I've reached out to any of the judges and he's reached out to me amongst others over the years. Um, We've always been 100% there for them. You know, some of them are older than I am, some of our winners, but nonetheless, there are our children in terms of the industry. Right. And we try, I think every one of us, I've not seen a one of the judges who has been anything less than a nurturing parent, if you will, uh, for each year's crop. And we never forget. The, it's not like, oh, your year is up, it's some new people. We're there for these uh, these winners and runners up and the published finalists forever. Yeah. We're sometimes I'll we'll have like on this podcast, I've had people all the way well, Dean Wesley Smith, he's volume one, but I've had winners throughout, you know, volume four, volume yep. eight, volume nine, and getting back on again. And now with this podcast, it just it helps for them if they have a new title coming out, you know, they'll just we say, okay, let's just do this and announce it. On this and it, this this podcast reaches about 120 countries now, mm-hmm. and so it just you know it helps to get that that broadcast that, sure, that news, absolutely, which is, which is amazing. So now, you and your career. So yes. um, I'm very interested in just talking about because it it's it's a fascinating career from my perspective. So obviously, I'm interested in including the the involvement of Riders of the Future. Sure, as, early on for me as a pup. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, when this contest uh, originated, uh, of course, there was an internet. There's been an internet for a long time, but there wasn't a World Wide Web. And uh, so I heard about it, I imagine, through Locus, the trade journal yeah. of the science fiction field. I imagine that's where I first heard about it. And it just sounded, well, to be honest, too good to be true. You know, big money prizes, judges, top names in the industry. And as long as you weren't already an established pro, that was the only criterion. Uh, if you weren't already an established pro, you could enter. So I did enter. Uh, of course I entered. Uh, and as I said uh, when I gave my talk to the, the students this year, you're already farther ahead in your career than I was at that stage because I entered and never won. We have judges who are, of course, past winners. As you mentioned right. Wesley Smith going right back to volume one. Um, and Nina Kariki Hoffman. Also winner. volume so, one. Uh, right. Also volume one. So we have uh, certainly a, a good track record of people who have been winners, but there are also people like myself, and I think Kevin J. Anderson, too, who entered early on. And uh, we were lucky enough to get some honorable mentions. 
but never first, second, third place, never published finalist. So, uh, Brandon Sanderson as well, Brand- honorable mention. Oh, is that all Brandon yeah. was? Oh, all right. <laughs> and he, he did all right nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, I, uh, was delighted to get an honorable, the three honorable mentions is what I actually got. But what I was more delighted about was that Algis Budras, A.J. Budras, took the time on one of my manuscripts. Uh, you know, you've got, this was back in the day when we submitted on paper, by the right. way, not electronically. And he wrote in his own hand uh, a collection of notes about my, and I wasn't winning or anything. He just took the time out. And, you know, normally, when and I certainly was also submitting to the magazines that existed at the time, and some of them still do, magazine fantasy and science fiction, uh, analog, I think mm-hmm. Asimov science fiction magazine. Uh, but you would be lucky to get a form rejection, or maybe I remember Gardner Dozois uh, once wrote three words in one of mine. Try again, Bob. Nobody calls me Bob Gardner. If you weren't dead, I would have to correct you about that now. But <laughs> try again, Rob. That was it, right? Uh, and I was pleased to get that. That was a little nugget of encouragement. But what AJ gave me was a critique, and that really helped me. And I did eventually sell the story that he critiqued uh, to Amazing Stories, uh, and they used it as a cover story. And my great friend, who also went on to become a judge, but on the artist side, Bob Eggleton, uh, did the cover art for the wow. issue of Amazing that that story ended up in, which was um, in 1988. And back then, Bob was uh, also a beginner, so I was able to afford to buy the original painting from it. Hangs above my fireplace in my home. Uh, I could never afford an original Eggleton today, but back then he was, uh, you know, still within uh, the price range of mortal man to buy, and I yeah. did. That's awesome. So now, so you did that, and between then and when I met you at uh, in Toronto at Torcon, that's right. That's, that's, if it wasn't 20 years, it was certainly 18 or something like that between the early 80s, mid 80s when I was entering and the early 2000s we met in, in around that way, almost two decades for sure. So you won your Hugo for, was it the WW? No, it was no, for, for the Hominids. Hominids. The first volume of, w, I have a lot of Hugo nominations under my belt, including for the first volume of the WWW trilogy, but it was for Hominids, the first right. volume of my Neanderthal Parallax trilogy. Uh, human uh, hominids won the Hugo the following year. Humans was a finalist for the Hugo and the final volume hybrids. Uh, I'm very proud of that trilogy about a parallel earth where Neanderthals survived to the present day. And we did not And a portal uh, that opens up between the two versions of reality, um, classic kind of uh, stranger in a strange land plot where in the first book, one of our, one of their people ends up in our world. In the second book, one of our people ends up in their world. And then the third book, hybrids, quite deliberately called that, where we try to find a synthesis of the two ways of life and see if two very different takes on the stewardship of planet Earth uh, can find a, a way to live together. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that. The Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so then... Was that basically your where you were at when you won your your Hugo? Those were the three novels, or you had? I know you had. Oh a lot no, of short, no, short no! I had already. Uh, I don't know what numbers those were. I can. Uh, I'd already published Golden Fleece, Farseer, Fossil Under Foreigner, End of an Era, 
The Terminal Experiment in 1996, which won the Nebula Award right. for Best Novel of the Year. Starplex, uh, Terminal Experiment was my first Hugo finalist. Starplex the following year, my second Hugo finalist. Frame Shift, which was also a Hugo finalist. Uh, Illegal Alien, uh, Flash Forward, which became the TV series, Calculating God, a Hugo finalist. And then Hominids, which win, won the Hugo. Right. Uh, and that, you know... Uh, uh, not an unusual path for somebody to have a, uh, several Hugo nominations before um, winning. You know, yeah, there are people who burst on the scene, first novel and win the Hugo, uh, and occasionally a novel. One of our judges, I've been lucky enough to mention my, my CV a bit at the beginning, that I've won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. I won them for three separate novels. Mindscan won the John W. Campbell. But Frederick Pohl, for instance, won all three, one of our judges, passed away, of course, yeah. but Fred had won all three for the same novel, Gateway, which I still hold as the finest science fiction novel ever written, and quite deservedly won all three. And when you think about it, there's three very different audiences, just uh, perhaps uh, the distinction between these awards isn't clear in the mind of uh, everybody who's listening. The Hugo is the People's Choice Award of Science Fiction. It's voted on by readers. The Nebula... But members, you have to be members of... Uh, of the Worldcon. You have to yeah. buy a membership in the Worldcon, but anybody can do that. Right. Any, any uh, you know, it's it's not cheap, so any you have to be an avid reader. Right. Uh, but if you are, anybody can vote. So the Hugos are the People's Choice Award. The Nebulas are the Academy Award. They're given by the professional writers to other writers. And the John W. Campbell Memorial Award is the top juried award in the field. And it's mostly decided by academics. So uh, there also is a John W. Campbell Award, or there was, for Best New Writer. Uh, it was renamed recently. And I think probably in an ill-advised bit of... Uh, uh, political correctness, it was renamed the Astounding Award. Now, John W. Campbell edited Astounding Stories, which, of right. course, L. Ron Hubbard was a mainstay of uh, that magazine, uh, as well as many others. But Astounding was sort of head and shoulders above many of the other pulps of that era. So right. if you were really good uh, and uh, also good with your science, rigorous with what you were doing, uh, you would be an astounding. And, you know, Hubbard published so much material. Uh, he was in lots and lots of money, but he was an astounding. Um, I'm not, and uh, I don't want to go off on a political rant here, I'm not a big fan of erasing history. Right. Uh, John W. Campbell was a man of his time, and probably even of his time had some objectionable views, even for his time. But his contribution to the field, his, uh, his nurturing of writers, uh, including Hubbard, of course, and the other names that we associate with the Golden Age, Asimov, Heinlein, uh, so many others, uh, including, and this is often forgotten, people say, ah, oh, what a monster he was, great number of female writers who were not getting a, a break elsewhere. We're getting a break in the pages of Astounding. Uh, so, um, yeah, the name was deprecated, unfortunately. I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I, think, I agree. I think, you know, history is important. You learn from history. When you erase history, then lessons are erased. Uh, he was a bad, he would be considered a bad person today. Was he a bad person in 1939 when he, uh, when the first issue of Astounding, he took over, I think, in 37, but 39 
uh, was the first year where it was entirely his choices. You know, you have inventory left over from the previous editor. Right through to 1971, when he passed away, that's a huge part of the history of magazine science fiction that that man, John Wood Campbell Jr., was responsible for. Um, And uh, we should never shy away from mentioning his flaws, but to erase his name from the history of science fiction, I think, was a mistake. Any erasure of, of history? Because yeah. that enables it to be repeated. You know, exactly. You know, my, uh, um, just tangentially, or my university, my alma mater, renamed itself. It was called uh, Ryerson University. I have a man named Edgerton Ryerson, uh, who some people decided was in part responsible for some mistreatment of indigenous or native Canadians. Despite the fact, as others pointed out, he was an honorary member of several indigenous tribes who actually he was a great advocate of. But what passed for acceptable uh, policy, you know, a half a century or more ago, uh, doesn't pass muster by today's standards. Anyway, so Ryerson, which had built a name for itself, it may not be well known to American listeners. No, I absolutely knew Ryerson. But Canada, it was the top. Uh, For my field of study, which was uh, radio and television arts, uh, television production, it was the top school. You you went to the CBC or CTV, the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Industry, uh, you know, all the top people were Ryerson grads. And they renamed it, and they renamed it Toronto Metropolitan University. I mean, you could not... It's a committee's name, right? It's a completely bland name. And it threw out, it threw out all of the name recognition that the university had built over decades. So, no, I'm not a fan of, uh, of renaming or, or erasing. I'm a fan of learning lessons from the past. Good. I absolutely agree with that. Okay, so now coming forward. Yes, from, I'm sorry. No, that's totally fine. There. No, I, this, is what, this is what I was anticipating on this discussion. Good. All right, little discursion. Yeah. Yes. Is, um, so then from there coming forward... Because one thing, your philosophy, because you've talked about before on writing, you, you strive to make each of your works memorable. There's yes. something special you're trying to accomplish with that. There is. And I, you know, there, there are two very distinct approaches to being a writer. You can be a writer who, uh, you know, writes an enormous amount of material. And you can still be, uh, write very good material. But there's no question that, you know, if you do one draft and send it out, you can probably find a market for it. Um, I wanted to, I never wanted to be known for a huge quantity of material. I wanted to be known for the quality of my material. I may be delusional, but I wanted to be known for that. And for me personally, I like a challenge. Whenever I do a book, it has to be for me something unlike what I've done before. Uh, a friend of mine in Toronto was, uh, you mentioned the introduction, I was uh, sometimes called the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction. A friend of mine in Toronto was the Dean of Canadian Mystery Fiction. His name was Peter Robinson, and a very popular series of novels about Alan Banks, uh, an expect- inspector with the Yorkshire Constabulary, which was made into a TV series and so forth. But um, Peter... And I had about the same number of books. Peter passed away, not because of COVID, but during COVID times. Um, But at the end of his career, his career was basically chronicling 
Alan Banks. And you could read the books pretty much in any order, and they were excellent, but comfortable and familiar. And my career uh, is a whole smorgasbord of things where I've done courtroom drama and illegal alien and romance and rollback and action adventure in, um, in Farseer and, uh, you know, recondite uh, cosmology and Starplex and a genetics thriller and we go on and on and on, all kinds of different things. And with different narrative techniques that maybe no reader really pays any attention to, uh, or lots, some do, but not a- the average reader, but to me made it worth writing. Uh, I want to get up each morning and say, what am I going to do today that I've never done before? That's what makes it fresh for me. That's good. Yeah. When you came out with, uh, that was the last one. At- the Oppenheimer Alternative? Yes, Oppenheimer yeah, Alternative. Yeah, my most recently published yeah. one. Yeah. Completely different than anything I'd done before. Totally. And for me, the challenge was, um, so the Oppenheimer Alternative is an alternate history about the Manhattan Project that other people have written alternate histories about the Manhattan Project, World War II. But I wanted to make sure that every character in the book was not just real, but also famous. So that unlike every book I'd previously done where I could say, I'm the world's foremost authority on Caitlin Dechter, who's the main character in Wake, Watch, and Wonder, Ponder, Bonnet, the main character in Hominids. You can tell me that you don't think that character might have acted that way, but nobody knows those characters better than me. That wasn't true, could not be true, about the characters in the Oppenheimer alternative, which are right, Robert which Oppenheimer. What fascinated me was like, I can imagine just people are still alive that could say, no, that's, that's not right. accurate. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, amongst the characters in the book are Edward Teller. Now, Teller is dead. But Gregory Benford, one of our judges, uh, was uh, Teller was his thesis supervisor. I mean, he knew Teller. And uh, Doug Beeson, another one of our judges, uh, used to be the associate director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, where Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project uh, was based, and he knew many of these people. Uh, and uh, uh, they both very kindly read the book in manuscript for me and said, yep, yeah, you've nailed these guys. Took an enormous amount of research because it's a high wire act. You know there are people out there who have uh, you know, done PhD theses on these, ca- these real-life people. Or uh, in the case of Oppenheimer, uh, I'm sure you've seen the ads here around town. There's a movie coming out. Not foolishly, Christopher Nolan. You did not option my book. You optioned, however, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, American Prometheus, by Martin J. Sherwin and Kai Bird. And uh, so I sent my manuscript to Marty Sherwin, and he gave me a blurb for it. He said, yeah, this is good. You've, you, you've got your Oppenheimer down cold. And that meant the world to me that the experts said, yes, I'd done right. it. You know, because the only reason to do a challenge for yourself is that there's a risk of failure. It's not a challenge right? if you might not fail at it, right? It's just, oh, you know, uh, somebody says, you want to go for a five-mile walk? I say, yeah, I can do that. You want to go for a 50-mile walk? Uh, I might, I can try. I don't know if I'll make it, right? Yeah. That's a challenge, right? So uh, it was the same thing with the Oppenheimer alternative. It was worth doing because it was a challenge and uh, got me some of the best reviews of my life. I got another, speaking of wonderful blurbs, as I say, it's an alternate history. Uh, So I wanted a blurb from, um, I think he's our newest writer judge, S.M. Sterling, who is, you know, the the king 
the dean, let us say, of alternate history these days. Right. And uh, he very graciously, not only he read the book, but he loved the book, which uh, meant the world to me. Because I was, that's his turf. I'd never done alternate history before. So you want to, you know, if you want to find out if you've done a good job, you ask the best in that subgenre. Is this okay? Did I violate the rules of this form? How was this book? He said, I loved it. And that meant the world to me as well. That's great. So now you've got a, um, a new challenge yes. that you've taken on with uh, the downloaded. Can you yeah. talk about that? So um, Audible uh, has learned a lesson from Netflix. Netflix started out as, as graybeards like you and me will remember uh, delivering DVDs through the mail, right? Which they didn't make any content. They just bought DVDs and would rent them out. Uh, and ultimately, the rentals would accrue to be more than what they'd paid to buy the DVD in the first place. And then they, of course, went digital. They very wisely, unlike traditional publishing, which is very resistant to the shift to digital, uh, Netflix had a, they said, no, no, the world is going to be digital. Let's move to that platform. And for many years, Netflix did in digital precisely what they had done in physical media, distribute other people's content. And then they realized, you know, yeah, the, you, you get a cut, but you get a bigger cut if you're distributing your own content. And they decided to become, and now are, of course, a giant producer of film and television, right? Some of the best stuff out there is right. Netflix originals. So Audible watched that with great interest and said, you know, we've got to start producing original content. It's all well and good to license from Hachette or Macmillan or Random House uh, properties or from authors individually, or of course, all the Hubbard material, which is right. all available on Audible. Um, but we could have a bigger piece of the pie if we produced our own. So they reached out to some authors that they liked very grateful that they, I was one of them and said, would you write something originally for us, um, essentially a novel for us? And I said, well, yeah, but I, I, I'm basically a print pub writer. And they said, no, 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 you can have the print rights. We just want six months of it being first available as original content on Audible. And so I wrote something with that in mind, which was um, a different way to structure it. And they said the way they wanted to do my particular Audible original is um, to essentially treat it the way uh, Netflix treats a series where the, or, or Paramount Plus or any of the streamers drop an episode a week for a period of time. So they wanted 10 episodes. I never structured something where it was 10 parts, each of which had to end in a way that you're going to come back. Right. Yeah, that you're going to come back. And eventually it'll be available as a complete thing where you listen as one contiguous thing. But um, so I finished my part of it almost a year ago and we've recorded, they decided uh, that I've, um, I think 11 distinctive, vo nine, nine distinctive narrators, first person narrators in it. And they decided to get nine different actors. And uh, we've recorded all but the two main male leads. We've recorded the female lead. Um, and the, uh, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but the producer had in mind getting uh, Brendan Fraser. He's a Canadian. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were producing it uh, with the uh, studios in Toronto. And then Brendan went and 
gosh darn it, won the Academy Award for Best Actor, and suddenly it was not a not available. Not a, at not, least, not at least in our price, price range. That That's had. right, you know. <laughs> so uh, they are uh, uh, the Audible head offices in New Jersey has been auditioning a list actors. Uh, to to fill the remaining parts. And all we're waiting for is to record um, it. Now, when I wrote it, we were in the thick of COVID. And so they said, uh, and I'm sure you've encountered this when you've been doing uh, audible drama in the, in the last couple of years. It's very difficult to get a whole bunch of people in the studio. Right. But we had um, uh, Nancy Cartwright here as a special speaker at the Writers of the Future. And I went to her talk yesterday, and she was talking about how difficult it was to do The Simpsons when the actors couldn't be, you know, her yeah. and uh, uh, Yardley Smith and uh, Dan Castellanata and um, uh, so forth couldn't all be in the same studio at the same time for fear that they would give each other COVID and shut the show down, right? So when Audible said to me, now you can do as many actors or voices as you want, but structure it in such a way that only one actor at a time has to be in the studio. And so um, because we're not sure during this COVID crisis that we'll be able to mount a studio with multiple actors interacting. So I ended up writing it to that that constraint, and I actually took as the model uh, the Kurosawa film uh, Rashomon, which is a series of different narrators uh, recounting their take on the same events, mm. uh, which is sometimes reinforcing what the other guy said and sometimes contradicting. Very interesting structure. Like when you go to the workshop and you hear the, the that's judges. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's right. Yes, that's right. Uh, so um, we're just waiting to, to record the final two parts. Uh, as you and I are talking, it's the end of April 2023. They had originally told me, of course, it was going to be out in November of 2022 and blah, 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 delays, delays. Uh, we're hoping for June that it will be out. And I've got to say, we've been gathering blurbs. I've been gathering blurbs for the eventual print edition. And I've gotten just spectacular uh, cover blurbs for it. Uh, people are telling me, uh, and I hope they're not just flattering me, that it's the best or amongst the best things I've ever written. I'm really, really proud of it. The downloaded, uh, to come soon as an Audible original, and then eventually six months down the road in print and ebook and other formats. That's great. So, But I will just say very briefly, because uh, Dean Wesley Smith is all about this, and when he gives his talk here as a judge, the world has changed. There are all kinds of ways to be a science fiction writer, other than just the four or five surviving New York publishing houses. There are all kinds of routes and uh, places. People are doing uh, self-publishing. They're doing audio originals. They're doing uh, graphic novels. They're doing gaming writing. Uh, they're doing um, all kinds of distribution channels. Uh, uh, as uh, Amazon has just started their Vellum service, which is where you serialize fiction right. a chapter at a time. There are all kinds of different ways of doing this. Now, when I entered this contest in the 80s, I never dreamed that I'd be writing something that would first be heard as an audiobook. So the technology changes, uh, the uh, ways of distributing content change, but the number one thing that a science fiction writer has to always bring to the table is a well-told story with believable characters and a fresh perspective that you could not get in mainstream fiction. Absolutely. And the point you were just making there, too, about when you started, you didn't 
you couldn't anticipate. Couldn't, it. and even as a professional science fiction writer, yeah. did not see the future that uh, that we were going to have. We had the same problem with the earlier volumes. All we got from the talent were rights for the mass market paperback. Right. We didn't envision an audiobook. We didn't envision eBooks. So all those earlier books are out of print, and right? Because we can't get all the the rights or the amount of work to be able to get the rights yeah. back to do that. They'll never get reprinted. Yeah, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It, um, the world and Dean Wesley Smith makes an excellent uh, t- gives an excellent talk about this and elsewhere. I mean, you can right. find Dean's comments online. But uh, that paradigm shift, and he and Chris uh, Christine Catherine Rush, his his wife and also business partner, who he met at the first workshop for who, writers. Who of the we future. met at Writers of the Future. That's right. And of course, they were early adopters. They shifted early to self publishing and to using uh, crowdfunding like Kickstarter yeah. as a way of uh, uh, monetizing uh, their their uh, output. Um, it is a time to be nimble as a create content creator. Uh, to look for opportunities that nobody even dreamed of when this contest started. This is the 39th year of the contest. Nobody, even this cadre of the world's greatest science fiction writers who were the original judges, did not anticipate that in their lifetimes uh, the the landscape of entertainment would change so completely. Uh, and the nimble ones, the the you know uh, the evolutionarily fit ones who survive in a changing environment, are like myself, Kevin Anderson, uh, uh, Chris and Dean, uh, you know, and and of course our our great judge uh, Brandon Sanderson, who has made history with his Kickstarter, gigantic, gigantic Kickstarter. These people are uh, are the ones who are surviving, uh, whereas they now call it tr- legacy publishing. Trad publishing uh, is holding on, you know, by a thread. Yeah. It's it's funny because when someone signs the release for our for when we do our stuff, mm-hmm. they'll joke about it, you know, about we're giving you rights for everything, like on Mars and everything. Yes, else. that's right. All technologies we, now known are yet to be invented anywhere in the universe. Yeah, that's yeah, right. And we, you have to do that. You have to now because, because we've learned from, it's hard. Who knows? Won. That's we've right. It's a hard, hard won lesson. We've lost some amazing stories yeah. that we can no longer share. Yeah. And unfortunately, no one else is willing to take it on because there's so much new content constantly coming out. Right. The earlier stuff. Is right. Just, yeah. And, you know, this is interesting because I always, uh, when I teach writing, uh, I always ask, what are you reading? And what's astonishing to me is people who want to write who don't read at all, right? I see. Yeah, you you got to go and read. But you have to read not just the current material, but the classics too. And I mean, the Hubbard's backlist, uh, you know, is obviously, there. there's no new Hubbard, right? Right. He, uh, and there's no new Asimov. There's no new Clark. There's no new Heinlein. There's no new Ursula K. Le Guin. There's no new, uh, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells, Jules Verne. But you have to be Mary Shelley, who created it all, the founder of our genre. Um, you have to be familiar with that stuff. You have to know where you came from. Uh, it's a, it's an old, old phrase. It was, uh, Isaac Newton said it, you know, but it's absolutely true. He said, if I have seen further than those who went before me, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. It behooves people to be familiar with the giants who strode this earth before you were even born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you have to know the classics uh, as well as 
what currently is being published. I absolutely agree with that. And it's um, Leslie Robin, the yes, ed- Leslie, editor of, of um, Galaxy's, Edge, Galaxy's Edge and also the associate publisher of Arc Manor and Phoenix Pick and Kazakh Books. And Kazakh is my American publisher. Uh, yeah, she's here for, I guess, the first time speaking. I yeah. introduced you to Leslie yeah, at, uh, absolutely. at, at, at Dragon, Dragon Con. Con. At and, dinner. She was your plus one. Uh, she was my plus one at dinner. <laughs> and um, and uh, I knew that Kasich, well, Kasich didn't exist uh, at that point, but I knew that her uh, little company with uh, Shahid Mahmoud, mm-hmm. who runs it, uh, out of Rockville, Maryland, that they were creative. Uh, and looking for new ways to do uh, to do things, uh, and that uh, yeah, I, I really felt that you needed to get to know yeah, that absolutely. company. Yeah, she was a guest interviewer yesterday for the for the podcast. She talked about when she was being introduced into the genre because she loved to read. Yes, and she met Mike Resnick, one she, of our great she, judges, and she met him via um, eBay eBay when she was trying to order an Anne McCaffrey signed book That's that right. he had listed. And so that connected up. He sent her a box of books. I uh, said, read these. These are the classics, which had all those authors you just, yeah, yeah. just named, Clark and, and Hubbard and Heinlein. And so she read them all. And that was like, he said, you've got to know these yes. to move on, you know, to know your, your genre. Absolutely. And Mike, uh, I mentioned him earlier. I called right. him my mentor too. Um, I was well read. I, I, my introduction to Mike was, again, something none of us anticipated, none of our science fiction writers anticipated decades ago, was uh, CompuServe, the online world. I met him. That, you know, CompuServe's defunct now, but they used to have a vigorous science fiction and fantasy forum discussion group. Right. I met him there and um, he, uh, you know, uh, told me when I was dead wrong, he had no compunctions about saying, no, no, you're full of beans. This is the way it really is. But he also was so nurturing. Mike is, of course, now passed away, but was one of our great judges. Uh, And for me, early on, he said, you know, um, I think you got some talent, kid. Why don't you write some stories for my anthologies? And um, some of the very best work I ever did in my life was for anthologies that Mike edited either on his own or often, you know, in collaboration also passed away to Martin Harry Greenberg, the great anthologist. Right. But um, Mike uh, bought um, stories from me. Well, uh, Dinosaur Fantastic, uh, my most reprinted story, which is called Just Like Old Times, he commissioned for that. And my novel Red Planet Blues, which I'm now working with a very good group of people to try and get set up as a television series, started as a novella for an anthology he edited called Down These Dark Spaceways for an original anthology of the Science Fiction Book Club of noir detective fiction that was also science fiction. And I wrote a story called Identity Theft for that that was nominated for the Hugo, nominated for the Nebula, won Spain's top 10,000 euro uh, prize for uh, science fiction writing and became the germ of this novel, Red Planet Blues. Uh, All because, as Leslie had told you, and as I'm telling you now, he would spot young writers and say, there's something there, and if there's a nurturing, guiding hand, which really is the whole spirit of Writers of the Future, Mm -hmm. a nurturing, guiding hand, we can turn this uh, eager, young, or not so young beginner into an established bankable name. And he did that time and time again under the auspices of this contest and also 
uh, in uh, before he was associated with the contest. That's yeah. the legacy that Mike Resnick, uh, the great, great Mike, Michael Diamond Resnick was his full name, is left behind for us. Yeah, he was uh, such a nice man. He so loved the contest. He would go on and on about how the subgenre of recursive science fiction began with Owen Hubbard's typewriter in his Right, side. which is a fascinating subgenre. Um, and, and Mike wrote a number of those himself, too. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so now in our last 10 minutes or Whatever so. Whatever you've got, yeah. Yeah, so you're a judge. You're also dedicated to helping that aspiring writer. So let's take this last little, you know, 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So talking about, like, advice and that you could give towards the aspiring writer. So we've got your story of how you've made it. And right. no, no two people's story is the same. No, yours it's is, not. That's is, true. Is, it's, a, it's a very um, amazing, full of banners and, and, and rocket glare and the whole thing happening as you've proceeded as an author. And I've read several of your books, and I love them all, and they're all so different. You're not yes, like, thank you. It's not, oh, this is a Sawyer. Like, this is, yeah, that's no, what I want it, people this to is say. Sawyer? Uh, I, can't, I, want, I can't believe this, the author of this, is the same guy who wrote that. That's what I want them to say. I want them to like them all. Well, no, I don't. Uh, here's a piece of advice, and it's a hard one for beginning writers. You have to embrace the fact that not everybody is going to like what you write. Correct. Your job is not to be blandly acceptable to the masses. Your job is to be uh, the favorite author of a narrow segment of the reading public so that people will say, this is the highest compliment you can pay to a writer, is that that person is on my buy on site list, which means when I see that name, either on an Amazon listing or on a, a bookstore shelf, and it's something I don't already have, I don't read the blurb. I don't care what it's about. That's my guy or gal or person uh, that I read everything they write. Other people will say, well, I don't know what's seeing that guy. I don't really see that person. Uh, and that's fine. That's fine. People have different tastes. And beginning writers are so wounded when somebody says, I don't like that. That doesn't mean it's not any good. This is the great failing of the um, North American, I can't speak to our European uh, uh, contest centers, but certainly the North American uh, educational system of the last several decades uh, has conflated in students' minds, not any good and not to my taste. They think of them as the same thing, and they aren't. They're radically different things. Not any good there is a lot of stuff that's not any good. As I say, poor Carrie English has to find the good right. stuff out of some of the stuff that comes in. Anybody can enter this contest. Not all of it is good. Not to my taste is a completely different thing. Uh, you know, I don't like opera. That doesn't mean opera is no good. Right. Opera is fantastic. I have friends who are professional musicians who can discourse for hours on end about how great Carmen is, as an example. You know, and it's just... That's fine, but it's not for me. And when you're starting out, you're so sensitive that when somebody says, I don't like your story, if they say, you say, why? Well, you know, I, don't, I, I don't like high fantasy or I don't like hard SF or I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm sappy character-driven stories or whatever. Then, okay, that's fine. I'm not writing for you. If they say, I don't like your story because the dialogue was stilted, uh, the action was unbelievable, uh, the ending didn't resolve the problem. You said, oh, then you got to listen to that, right? That is 
something is wrong as opposed to it's not to their taste. But if somebody doesn't like your story around the critique group that you might belong to, or if you share manuscripts online, that doesn't mean the story is necessarily bad. Um, and the hardest thing for us as judges to do is to set aside our personal taste. Right. I don't read high fantasy for pleasure. We had fabulous high fantasy entries into the contest. And I have to say, is this good? Not is it to my taste? That's the difference. A good book reviewer, unlike the reviewers on Amazon who are all amateurs, the reviewers at Publishers Weekly or Library Journal or what have you, their job is to set aside their personal taste and evaluate whether it's any good. That's the most important thing, I think, for a beginning writer to recognize, that trying to please everybody means you don't end up pleasing. You, you may end up, you know, eh, okay, I can accept that. But you don't end up being the favorite writer of anybody if you try to please everybody. That's very And you make a living. You don't need a big audience to make a living as a writer. You need a loyal audience who will buy everything you write. And uh, that's who you cater to. The people who will never like, I write philosophically oriented, hard science fiction, mostly set in the near future, liberally sprinkled with bad puns and pop culture references. If there's anything that ties together my fiction, that's it. If those things don't appeal to you, I'm not your right writer. I can recommend a writer to you who you might like. You tell me what you like, I'll tell you somebody who's excellent at what you like. But I'm never going to change to make you happy. And a beginning writer who hears from their critique circle, I don't like all the emotionalism, your character cries too often, that stupid pun and made me wince. Uh, you know, you've got too many short choppy sentences for my taste, blah, blah, blah. If you go around and you fix that and that and that around the circle so that nobody has anything they object to, you also probably have something so bland that nobody, you ask, go back, a year later, if you're in a writer's workshop, and say, do you remember my story from last year? And if they don't, nobody does. That's because you blandified it into oblivion. If people, oh, yeah, I hated that one, and somebody else says, I loved that one, then you're on your path to being a professional writer. That's great. Now, what you just said sparks another question, because I see you quite frequently on social media. Yeah. And sometimes you say, okay, I'm taking a break. I now. do. It's I get getting too up. hostile. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about like, because you're very active. Yeah. And then you're very not active. Yeah, yeah. I, I reached my limit. Um, I, you know, the thing about social media is we, we never evolved to deal with people that you don't see. Right. right. We look each other in the eye. We check the facial expression. We can tell by a posture on the audio. You can't see that I just crossed my arms in front of my chest. But John, if he sees that, he's, oh, Rob is a little bit defensive right now. Or now Rob is relaxed. You can see all that. You don't see it on social media. And there's so many people who will say things on social media that they would never say to your face. Especially the guys with the avatar. And you don't even know if it's the right You don't even know their, their, their real name yeah. behind that anonymity. Uh, gutter sniping is very easy. And there's also, it just drives me nuts because, uh, you know, uh, uh, you put a post on social media, but whatever the top might be writing advice might be a critique of the latest episode of, you know, the latest Star Trek series, various things that I write about uh, Canadian politics, whatever interests me. And people use the comment box as a free association prompt for whatever the first few words caught their eye. So I might say, you know, 
you know, we're having a cold snap in Toronto where I live and somebody will come on with a rant about Justin Trudeau, our prime minister. You know, yeah, okay. You saw the word Canada and you want to talk, you've got your own wall, go talk about it over there, right? If I'm talking about, and I do talk about Canadian politics, then give me your thoughtful response. But you reach a point, I do periodically, you probably saw it in the yeah. last couple of weeks, yep. where I just said, screw this, I've just had it, I'll be back. And, you know, it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a seductive mistress, social media, I'll be back. But um, yeah, for uh, every once in a while, I just got to walk away and, and I knew when I walked away, by the way, that I was coming to LA. I was here, obviously, this week for Writers of the Future. But with your kind permission and Joni's, I came a week earlier and spent it with a high school friend and other buddies right. and interacting. We, you know, and we would spend hours talking about politics, about uh, about uh, the the latest Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, and Picard, which just had its finale as I when I got here while I was here, uh, debating stuff. But with that social interaction where you can see when somebody is you're, you're you're angering somebody or somebody's agreeing with you or whether they're really listening or whether they're you know they're checking their phone or they've you know uh so yeah i i needed a dose of real face-to-face -face humanity and for all of the technological marvels that i and other hard science fiction writers write about it all comes back down to the fact that we are human beings, socially interactive beings, and social media is almost a misnomer. It's not really social. Um, it's, uh, it's not what we evolved to be. We evolved to be people who interact face-to-face, -face, who can uh, absorb not just typed words, and I say this advisedly as somebody makes his living typing words, but not just typed words, but tone of voice. Uh, uh, facial expression, body language, all of that. And also, again, when you're interacting in real life, there isn't that cloak of anonymity. Right. I blocked somebody this morning. I went back onto Facebook and somebody whose name was uh, a play, it, it was obviously a pun. So obviously it wasn't their real name. And I thought, this guy just said something mean to a real life friend of mine and uh, it doesn't even have the courage or the guts to use their own name. I'll just say parenthetically, as we're ascending here, a lot of people ask me, what about using a pen name? Of course, Hubbard used a pen name on some things as well. 15 different pen 15 names. 15 pen names. You do that sometimes because you're writing multiple stories in the same magazine, or you're writing in different genres, or not in Hubbard's case, but in other writers' case, your career tanked, and you have to restart under a new name because you know publishers think you're not marketable anymore. But in real life, when you say something, you know, you're John Goodwin. I'm Robert J. Sawyer. And, you know, uh, you're in essence putting your personal reputation behind whatever you say. Not that you have to defend it to the death or anything, which you do in any little fight on Facebook, but, uh, but that you're honestly presenting who you are. And so much of social media, so-called social media, isn't that at all. It's people hiding behind false names and sometimes multiple accounts mm -hmm. to take a swipe at uh, whether it's politics, uh, political enemies, religious enemies, cultural enemies, taking whatever. And I just have my fill now and again. But it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, I'll be back. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the close of our hour here. Lovely. 
And uh, as I anticipated would happen, um, I asked maybe one question, maybe two questions. <laughs> and we just go. And we just go, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Rob. My pleasure, John. Thank you. <laughs>